Hello, and welcome to the March 2016 episode of the LGBT Law Notes podcast. I am Matt Skinner, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York. With me, as always, is Professor Art Leonard of New York Law School, the Chief Editor and Writer of LGBT Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal and legislative developments affecting the LGBT community here and abroad. First this month, our lead story looks back on the life and legacy of U.S. Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia, who died in February while on a hunting trip in Texas. He left behind quite an anti-gay legacy. What should we remember about Justice Scalia, Art? Well, what we should remember about Justice Scalia is that given every opportunity, he voted against lesbian and gay rights. Uh, Sometimes it was more indirect, sometimes it was more direct, uh, with gay people being uh, either the direct subject matter of the case or the plaintiffs in the case. Uh, or the defendants in the case. Uh, Justice Scalia was appointed to the Supreme Court by President Reagan, and he uh, joined the court for the 1986-87 term, which was the year after Bowers versus Hardwick was decided. So that's the only one of the major Supreme Court decisions of uh, modern times in which uh, he did not vote. Uh, prior to that, there were a few decisions that weren't uh, so significant, although there was one upholding the anti-gay immigration exclusion back in the 1960s. But uh, it was clear that Justice Scalia approved of the court's decision in Bowers versus Hardwick, which rejected a constitutional challenge to the Georgia sodomy law because he cited it an awful lot and chided the court for not adhering to it. Uh, The cases in which Justice Scalia Uh, most prominently wrote on LGBT rights were his dissents in the quartet of major LGBT victories that occurred over the past 20 years. Uh, The first was in Romer versus Evans, where the court struck down a state constitutional amendment in Colorado that prohibited the state or its political subdivisions from protecting gay people from discrimination. Justice Scalia argued in a dissent, which he characterized as a vigorous dissent, that this was contradictory to Bowers versus Hardwick. After all, he wrote, uh, echoing uh, what had been said by a few lower federal courts, if it's constitutional to make the conduct that defines a class illegal, how could the class have special protection under the Equal Protection Clause? Uh, And uh, therefore, he felt that uh, this was just a case of, as he uh, called it, uh, tolerant Coloradans uh, voting to preserve traditional morality in their state, basically. And uh, in the uh, dissent, uh, there were various phrases that uh, touched off a lot of uh, angst from people who were reading it, including that, well, if if people don't want to associate with gay people in their workplaces, why should they be forced to? You know, uh, you could just substitute African-Americans for gay people here and realize how obnoxious it was. Uh, In any event, that was uh, Scalia's first real diatribe against gay rights. Uh, He subsequently uh, helped to uh, uh, uphold the Boy Scouts ban on uh, gay adults being members and leaders. Uh, He provided the fifth vote in that case. For the majority, uh, the opinion was written by Chief Justice Rehnquist and drew dissents from uh, the usual suspects in a five to four gay rights case. Uh, but then we had our three major victories, Lawrence versus Texas in 2003, United States versus Windsor in 2013, and Fell versus Hodges uh, last year in June. And in all of those, Justice Scalia was dissenting in full voice. Uh, he was uh, 
really upset with the reversal of Bowers versus Hardwick in the Lawrence case. Uh, Bowers had been decided just 17 years before. Uh, he said nothing has changed in the interim to suggest that the court should change its position on this. Uh, he had a large part of his dissent with uh, stare decisis and uh, precedent, and he said, uh, well, Bowers versus Hardwick is a precedent, and it's been followed by numerous courts. It's been relied on by uh, governments in uh, making policy. Uh, why shouldn't stare decisis apply there when the court, and he really was aiming his barbs here at uh, Justice O'Connor and Justice Kennedy, the court is standing by Roe v. Wade. Uh, you know, if, if stare decisis compels standing by Roe v. Wade, it should compel standing by Bowers versus Hardwick. And uh, he seized upon a statement by Justice Kennedy in the majority opinion that this had nothing to do with legal recognition for same-sex relationships. He said, don't you believe it in his dissent. They'll be back. This opens up a pathway to marriage, same-sex marriage. So he was prophetic in that he sense. Was, he was prophetic uh, because we came back. And uh, just 10 years later, in uh, 2013, in U.S. v. Windsor, uh, by 5 to 4, the court struck down the uh, Defense of Marriage Act provision under which the federal government was prohibited from recognizing same-sex marriages. And uh, Justice Scalia was in full cry in his dissenting opinion, ridiculed Justice Kennedy's reasoning, uh, and uh, basically took a portion of the majority opinion and showed how it could be rewritten to strike down state bans on same-sex marriage under the 14th Amendment. Windsor, of course, was under the Fifth Amendment since it involved uh, discrimination by the federal government. Uh, the state bans, of course, were being challenged as violating the 14th Amendment, which prohibits the states from denying individuals uh, due process of law or equal protection of the law. Uh, and Scalia, of course, was dissenting in full voice in Obergefell uh, in the decision uh, to strike down the ban on same-sex marriage in the four states of the Sixth Circuit and, by extension, in all of the remaining states that prohibited uh, same-sex marriage or refused to recognize same-sex marriages from other states. Uh, Scalia actually, in some ways, was not the most outspoken dissenter. All four of the dissenters uh, wrote their own opinions, uh, expressing their own concerns. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts says this case is not even about the Constitution. It has nothing to do with it. Uh, Scalia certainly joined that view. Uh, but uh, Scalia, as usual in these cases, uh, took to ridiculing Justice Kennedy's reasoning. He said uh, that he quoted certain cases and said they sounded like aphorisms from a fortune cookie. And uh, he said that if he were signing on to such an opinion, he would put his head in a bag to hide, presumably. <laughs> uh, so uh, Scalia was pretty outspoken. Now, there, there were a few cases where he wrote decisions which, on balance, may be helpful to gay people, but they weren't directly gay cases. And most uh, significant was uh, the on-call case where uh, he uh, upheld a cause of action under Title VII for same-sex harassment. Uh, a man who was not gay but who was subject to harassment by other men on a, an oil platform in the Gulf of Mexico and had sued for same-sex harassment under Title VII, the Fifth Circuit said there is no cause of action for same-sex harassment. Scalia said 
as long as the victim of harassment was selected because of his sex, he can bring an action under Title VII, regardless of the sex of the people harassing him. Uh, this is consistent with Scalia's uh, so-called strict construction of statutory language. Uh, but by strict construction of statutory language, he found himself on the dissenting side in Bragdon versus Abbott, the case in which the Supreme Court upheld a cause of action for discrimination under the Americans with Disabilities Act uh, against a dentist who refused to provide services to uh, a woman with HIV. Uh, so we should say that a lot of his opinions, and we're talking about what his sort of mode of interpretation was, a lot of his constitutional opinions flowed from uh, sort of a peculiar way he had of interpreting the Constitution. Of Well, he was an originalist, yes. uh, although he sometimes described himself as a weak originalist because he didn't totally renounce substantive due process, just partially renounced it. Yeah. He, he liked substantive due process when it served his purposes. But uh, another case uh, where uh, Scalia was in dissent uh, but a case that has been very helpful to us is Price Waterhouse versus Hopkins, a 1989 decision uh, holding that sex stereotyping could be evidence of sex-based discrimination under Title VII. Uh, Scalia was one of the dissenters in that case, although most of the dissent that he joined uh, was focused on other issues in the case about allocation of proof in Title VII cases. Uh, but the dissent he joined also uh, was trying to narrow the scope of uh, once again, Justice Kennedy uh, writing for the court in, the, in a plurality opinion in that case, uh, holding that sex stereotyping. Oh, actually, no, Kennedy was in dissent in that case. Scalia joined Kennedy's dissent. It was Brennan who wrote for the plurality, uh, Justice William Brennan. Uh, but the uh, sex stereotyping theory, of course, underlies the recent rulings by the EEOC uh, extending protection under Title VII to transgender people and lesbian and gay people. Uh, on the theory that discrimination based on gender identity or sexual orientation is really a form of sex discrimination, a position that perhaps Scalia would take or perhaps would not. And then we go back to uh, uh, the Oncal case and a sentence in there that is quoted by the EEOC in its gender identity and sexual orientation discriminations that uh, sometimes a statute can be construed to apply to uh, problems that are different from the ones imagined by the legislature because its language allows that interpretation. Uh, it can be extended to, as he put it, similar evils. Uh, and so the argument now is being made that the sex discrimination provision in Title VII can be applied to similar evils to sex discrimination, sexual orientation, and gender identity discrimination. And we're waiting to see how the federal appellate courts will respond to the sexual orientation decisions. The EEOC now has begun to file cases to, uh, to challenge uh, sexual orientation discrimination under Title VII in federal district courts. Uh, two new cases were filed on March 1st, just too late to be covered in the March issue of Law Notes, but they'll be addressed in some detail in the April issue. And now this, of course, opens up a vacancy on the Supreme Court, and now there's very... Uh wide speculation about what Obama is going to do with this and what the Senate will do with it. And uh, any uh, thoughts on that? Or where well, the, the immediate reaction of the Republican leadership in the Senate was, we will not entertain a nomination to fill Justice Scalia's seat from the current president. The, their view is that there is a tradition of not 
doing major judicial confirmations from a lame duck president. Of course, a lame duck president is a president who's still in office after his successor has been elected. So uh, President Obama doesn't become a lame duck until after November elections. Until then, he is serving out his second four-year term. He's been elected, and the, and the U.S. Constitution says, and this, this is not put as something he can do if he feels like it. It says the president shall nominate and uh, with the advice and consent of the Senate appoint judges to the Supreme Court. Uh, and President Obama is taking the position that that's a mandatory obligation of his. He takes a reasonable period of time to decide whom to nominate, and it's expected that he will make his nomination probably sometime in March, uh, which is in plenty of time uh, given the length of past confirmation battles for the Supreme Court. That's plenty of time to confirm somebody before the court's term starts in October. And for the court to spend about half of its current term without a ninth justice, and then to begin its next term without a ninth justice, uh, with the idea that the Republicans in the Senate will block any confirmation, and even if they lose their majority in elections, they will still be in charge until the new Congress convenes in January. And uh, presumably, if President Obama has nominated someone, he could renominate them to the new Congress. Uh, because he has a few weeks in office between the time the new Congress right. uh, convenes and his successor is is uh, inaugurated. So there could be a last-minute confirmation then, uh, especially if the Democrats reclaim control of the Senate, although it would have to be a wide margin of control because the Republicans are probably filibuster. Uh, and then, of course, if a Republican is, not, is elected president and the uh, Republicans keep control of the Senate, uh, they will, of course, wait. Uh, so we don't know how long it will take uh, to replace Justice Scalia on the court. He was a reliable vote against gay rights. Uh, there are no major gay rights cases pending now. There was a development today as we're taping this, which we'll talk about next month, but it was just a, a unanimous procurium uh, on, a, on an issue of interpretation of the full faith and credit clause. There may be one other interesting case this term for people who follow gay rights is not directly about gay rights, but the sequel to the Hobby Lobby decision, right. uh, again, challenging the contraception mandate and this idea of this case involves whether filling out a form is a burden on religion. And, right. But people, of course, are worried that that idea is going to be expanded. And we should mention that one of the cases, one of the opinions of which Justice Scalia used to brag is one of his best opinions, was Employment Division versus Smith, uh, which was a case in which he ruled on behalf of the court, he held that there, the free exercise of religion provision in the First Amendment does not privilege individuals to refuse to comply with state laws of general application. Uh, and that decision fueled the legislative response of the passage at the federal and state levels of Religious Freedom Restoration Acts, which purport to provide the equivalent protection that people in, enjoyed before Employment Division versus Smith to claim some kind of religious exemption from complying with general laws. Uh, the federal statute was at first uh, narrowed by the Supreme Court. They said it couldn't apply uh, to state laws, only to federal laws. Uh, so then states got into the business of passing these. And uh, there was a, a, a while where the, it, the issue sort of died down. And now with the advent of marriage equality, the issue has heated up again. 
and we are seeing legislative battles in the states about uh, passing new religious freedom restoration acts uh, specifically to protect businesses that don't want to get be involved with same-sex marriages, uh, photographers and uh, bakers and florists and uh, people who rent uh, party spaces and things of that sort. Uh, so there's a lot of turmoil now uh, about an issue that Justice Scalia thought he was pretty much settling with his decision uh, over 20 years ago in Employment Division versus Smith. All right, a lot to think about, and a lot, uh, a lot uh, is coming down the pike that will be interesting to follow. We'll take a short break, and when we return, we'll change gears and discuss two parental rights decisions out of Kentucky and New Jersey. All right, we're back discussing two big decisions from courts in Kentucky and New Jersey involving the rights of gay parents. I can start with the Kentucky Supreme Court decision, which I wrote about this month. Uh, the name of the case is A.H. versus W.R.L., uh, and it involves basically a former lesbian couple that had, uh, their names are Amy and Melissa. We only get their first names in the opinion. Uh, they were in a committed relationship, decided to have a child together. They agreed that Melissa would have the child, and she became uh, pregnant via donor insemination. When their daughter, who was given the pseudonym Laura in the opinion, was born in September 2006, Amy was present. They gave the Laura uh, Amy's last name, and Amy was intimately involved in all aspects of Laura's life. Uh, but as always happens in these cases, uh, a couple breaks up. And uh, two years later, Melissa uh, decided to marry a man. Uh, named Wesley. And Wesley then filed a petition for step-parent adoption. And Amy was not identified in the petition as a parent whose consent was required. She then filed a petition for shared custody and visitation in the family court in Kentucky and also moved to intervene and have the adoption action dismissed. She was successful in the trial court, but the Court of Appeals reversed, uh, concluding that she did not have standing to seek an adoption and remanding uh, with instructions to reinstate the step-parent adoption proceeding. Uh, the Kentucky Supreme Court then took the case and uh, reversed uh, the Court of Appeals. Um, and the was a unanimous uh, decision uh, written by Justice Bill Kent Cunningham on the Kentucky Supreme Court. Uh, and he really framed the case as more of a case uh, about civil procedure than a case about uh, he specifically says this: we shouldn't be getting all into the muck here with same-sex relationships, the definition of families. Uh, he, he said all of those things sort of needlessly complicated what was a simple case of civil procedure. Um, and he basically pointed to the Kentucky Rules of Civil Procedure and the rule that deals with intervention as of right. Uh, and that the quote of that rule says... Uh, you can intervene when an applicant claims an interest relating to the property or transaction which is the subject of the action. And uh, he then applied that rule and said, uh, here the subject of the adoption action is Laura and Amy is cl claiming a cognizable legal interest. Uh, while an order granting Wesley's adoption petition would impair or impede Amy's proffered custodial interest, since absent her intervention, the adoption proceeding would have concluded before her custody rights were determined. Um, he ultimately leaves whether Amy's going to succeed on the merits uh, as an issue for the trial court. 
but he does go on to clarify why she had a sufficient interest for intervening. And he points to a sperm donor agreement that affirmatively recognized Amy as the other parent of the unborn child. And while these donor agreements are, the legality of them is always in dispute, uh, or is often in dispute, um, he said whether or not this is a binding legal document, it is part of the evidence that we can look at here that this was, uh, there was an intent to make um, Amy a co-parent of Laura. Um, so taken all together, he says the complete factual picture indicates that Melissa fostered and encouraged Amy's relationship with Laura for years. And that's a significant observation because there is prior Kentucky case law finding that uh, same-sex co-parent uh, would have a, uh, a possibility of getting custody or visitation uh, based on the relationship that uh, she developed with the encouragement of the biological mother. Uh, with the child. Uh, so uh, in this case, it is distinctly possible that uh, Amy will prevail and uh, will uh, have either joint custody or visitation rights or some kind of legal relationship with the child, and that Wesley will not be able to adopt the child without her permission. So a big win for Lambda Legal there in Kentucky. And uh, we have another situation with three parents uh, in New Jersey. Can you tell us about that case, Art? Yeah, this is, this is a bit unusual, uh, or at least the, the trial judge certainly treats it as unusual. The, uh, this is a case of a gay male couple uh, who wanted to have a kid, and instead of hiring a surrogate, because after all it's illegal in New York to hire a surrogate, although it's legal in some other surrounding states, uh, one of them, one of the men, and they're all just uh, identified by initials in the opinion. We don't have any names here. Uh, one of the men uh, had a woman who was a longtime friend who expressed an interest in bearing their child, uh, provided that she could also be a parent. Uh, the idea was that this child would have three parents, uh, a birth mother, a father who was the biological father by sperm donation, and the father's same-sex partner, ultimately husband, since the two men are married, uh, and so they went forward on that basis. Uh, they didn't involve a doctor. They uh, bought a baster manual, and so they, they had a turkey baster baby. Uh, first attempt resulted in a miscarriage, but a second attempt was successful. And the daughter was born uh, in 2009. Uh, one of the men is her biological father. Uh, the woman is the biological mother, and the father's spouse is a co-parent, uh, really. Uh, and this situation seemed to work pretty well for several years. Uh, the child spent about 70% of her time with the mother, about 30% of the time with the fathers. Uh, the mother had a place down on the Jersey Shore where they lived, and she worked at her parents' restaurant. Uh, the men, one of them is a New York City school teacher. The other uh, had an interest in a business in New Jersey. They lived in Manhattan although they ultimately bought a house in New Jersey to be closer uh, uh, so that when they had uh, uh, custody of the child, residential custody, it wasn't uh, so far away. But things got a bit out of hand when she, uh, who was summering in Costa Rica with the child, fell in love with a neighbor. Uh, and the neighbor uh, was a man who... Uh, had joint custody of his children from his former marriage in California, and so he wasn't going to move full-time to the East Coast. She decided she wanted to move to the West Coast with the child. 
and that's when things erupted. Uh, the men asked her to propose a visitation schedule. She proposed a visitation schedule they didn't like because they didn't get enough contact with their daughter. Uh, and the, they ended up suing her. Uh, they wanted an order uh, declaring that uh, the biological father's husband was the child's legal parent. They wanted custody and visitation issues settled by the court. Uh, and they specifically wanted an order that she couldn't relocate the uh, daughter to California since they would drastically uh, suffer drastic reduction in their contact with her. Uh, and the trial judge, uh, Stephanie M. Waters of the New Jersey Superior Court in Ocean County, uh, ruled in favor of the fathers uh, pretty heavily in this case as extensive fact-finding. Uh, there's expert testimony by psychologists. It's... Uh, a very full opinion with lots of detail, and ultimately the judge concluded that all three of these people are parents to this child, and that in many respects the two men uh, provide a better situation for the child. Uh, Although he uses the term psychological parent, right? Yeah, psychological parent. Legal parent. Right, and, and it's an important part of the holding. She yeah. said under New Jersey statutes, one can only become a parent in uh, in a handful of ways. Uh, one of them is by being the biological parent. Another is by being an adopted parent or a step-parent by marriage. But she said in this case, uh, the, uh, the husband of the uh, biological father is a psychological parent but not a legal parent. And, but a psychological parent under New Jersey precedents can have custody and can have visitation rights and, in fact, is treated as an equal in terms of contesting for, the, for custody. So what she decided to do, Judge Waters here, is a little unusual. She said this child will have three custodial parents. And uh, the primary uh, residential custodial parent will be the two men. Uh, and the, uh, the mother is uh, ordered not to remove the child to California. I mean, if she's going to move to California, the child could visit her there, but would reside primarily with the uh, with the fathers in New Jersey. Very interesting case. Uh, I think it's possible it will be appealed. We'll see if the mother is uh, willing to sublimate her romantic interests in order to stay in New Jersey and uh, have uh, the kind of frequent contact with her daughter that she has enjoyed up to now. Uh, but a very, very interesting situation. It's, it's sort of unusual for a court to find that there are three people who uh, should share custody of a child. And it sort of reminds me of a statute in California that sort of yeah, California allows it, yeah. allows for it. But uh, this is it's an unusual for a, a court to construe a more traditional statutory framework to encompass this situation. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much, Art. We'll take another short break, and when we return, we'll discuss a preliminary ruling in a very interesting New York discrimination case against CUNY that again raises the question of how far Title VII goes. We are back discussing the case of Koch versus Baumgartner. There was an interesting ruling recently on a point of civil procedure art, but involved the very hot issue of whether Title VII covers discrimination based on sexual orientation. Can you tell us about it? Okay. Uh, the court's opinion on this motion doesn't go into the facts of the case at all. 
merely to say that Elizabeth Koch filed an action in New York State Supreme Court against uh, City University, her employer, the Feminist Press, uh, which is uh, an operation of, of CUNY, and the executive director of the Feminist Press, uh, Jennifer Baumgartner, alleging that she suffered unlawful employment discrimination because of her gender and actual or perceived sexual orientation in violation of Title VII and the New York State and city human rights laws, and also asserting other state law claims. Now, uh, presumably, her Title VII claim was on gender, and her New York City and state claims were on gender and sexual orientation. But by naming Title VII in her complaint, uh, she provided an avenue for the defendants to remove to federal court under a federal question jurisdiction, which they did. And the case was assigned to U.S. District Judge Lewis Kaplan. Uh, now, Title VII, of course, being invoked in the complaint, gives the court original jurisdiction over the case uh, as a federal question case. But uh, Ms. Koch moved to remand, remand the case back to state court, uh, citing the indeterminacy over whether Title VII covers her sexual orientation claim. Uh, Judge Kaplan... Uh, she said, should send the case back to state court because with the exception of the gender claim under Title VII, it's really a state law case, local law case. Uh, and uh, she said she was willing to leave it in federal court if Judge Kaplan would issue a declaratory judgment that her sexual orientation claim is actionable under Title VII. And, of course, as we've, we mentioned earlier in this podcast, last summer, the EEOC issued an opinion in the Baldwin case, a case involving a gay air traffic controller, uh, finding that Title VII does cover sexual orientation discrimination claims. And we have been closely following since then how this has been playing out in federal courts. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, there are two new cases on file by the EEOC in federal district courts. Uh, there are cases that have been brought by private parties that have asserted sexual orientation discrimination claims with mixed results. Uh, some federal judges have gone for it, some have not. It's a particular problem in a circuit where there is contrary circuit precedent. And this is the issue in the Second Circuit where this case is pending now. So uh, Judge Kaplan noted, of course, that the Second Circuit ruled in 2000 in Simonton versus Runyon that a sexual orientation discrimination claim as such is not actionable under Title VII but even as of 2000, there was a growing case law in the circuits uh, taking up the sex stereotyping theory from the Price Waterhouse case, which we also mentioned earlier in our discussion of Justice Scalia's career on the court, and taking that uh, sex stereotyping theory and allowing it to be used in cases where a lesbian or gay plaintiff alleging sexual orientation discrimination can allege facts sufficient to raise an issue of sex stereotyping. In that case, the Second Circuit will allow a Title VII case to go forward. It's unclear from Judge Kaplan's opinion whether Koch's factual allegations actually support a sex stereotyping theory. But he says it can't be ruled out at this point. And he came to the conclusion that even though the Second Circuit will not at this point or at least under existing uh, case law, will not entertain uh, sex, sexual orientation discrimination claim under Title VII, of course the Second Circuit could change its mind. And in the meantime, 
Uh, for one thing, uh, the district court clearly has jurisdiction of the gender discrimination claim under Title VII. But he also says, well, given the possibility of a sex stereotyping claim here, and given the EEOC's opinion that sexual orientation discrimination claims are actionable under Title VII, it's possible that the plaintiff could persuade a jury that she has a good case under Title VII. And, and he said it's certainly not a case that one can uh, reject out of hand, despite the uh, Simonton ruling. Uh, so he refuses to remand the case back to the uh, state court. He says, among other things, this, the sex discrimination claim and the sexual orientation discrimination claims arise out of the same factual context. Uh, and he also points out that as far as the sex discrimination claim goes, uh, the state and local laws in their impact overlap with Title VII. So he says there's no reason for me to dismiss the state law claims and send them back on their own. Uh, so Judge Kaplan determined to keep the case. And uh, it's it's just it's interesting to me as I'm I'm watching this unfold that federal district courts are in a difficult situation because uh, a lot of the thinking on the meaning of Title VII has moved forward over the past fifteen twenty years, and some of these district judges who are faced with these sexual orientation claims under Title VII they're constrained by circuit precedent, but it's circuit precedent that's aging badly in light of what's going on uh, in the lower courts. And, and as you mentioned in our last segment, uh, the EEOC is pushing forward on testing this right. theory in uh, cases they, in Baltimore and Pennsylvania. Right. There are these new cases where they are the plaintiff on behalf of charging parties. Uh, there are cases in which they've joined as an amicus in support of private plaintiffs. Uh, some of those cases have survived summary judgment or dismissal motions and are going forward. Uh, we've yet to get a a very clear appellate ruling accepting the EOC's theory. But there are some cases pending that are likely to get uh, opinions within the next year or so. Uh, and this is one of the areas where who gets appointed to that Supreme Court opening could make a big difference. Uh, Kai Feldblum, who's an EEOC commissioner, I saw quoted an article recently as saying it's now a race between the Supreme Court and Congress right. to see who finishes this first. Right, because we have the Equality Act right. uh, introduced last summer which abandoned the narrow approach of the old Employment Non-Discrimination Act, which had been the vehicle for uh, federal gay rights protection going back, oh, to the mid-'90s. Uh, and so uh, a decision was made uh, by the sponsors of the legislation and by representatives of the gay rights legal organizations and political organizations that it made sense to have a broad bill that would basically go through the federal code and wherever sex discrimination is prohibited, we would also prohibit sexual orientation and gender identity discrimination expressly. But while that's pending, and it's not going anywhere in Congress as long as the Republicans control both houses, uh, the EOC has undertaken its own campaign to push for protection under Title VII. Interesting side note, uh, the EEOC is not willing to push for gender identity discrimination coverage under the Americans with Disabilities Act. The Justice Department is making that argument in one pending case mm. that someone with gender dysphoria uh, can bring a, uh, a disability discrimination claim, but the EEOC sees that as unnecessary. They said, we have already held that Title VII covers this situation. 
we don't need to go under the ADA. Uh, but one aspect of the ADA that would, would make the ADA a stronger source of protection is the requirement of reasonable accommodations under the ADA, which you don't necessarily have under Title VII uh, for sex discrimination claims, although you, you do have arguments about uh, accommodating people who are pregnant. But, uh, you know, it, it might be nice to have ADA coverage as well. But right now, the EOC's uh, agenda is to establish uh, coverage for both sexual orientation and gender identity under Title VII, and that's where cases are going forward. All right. Uh, we will take our last short break, and when we return for our Of Note segment, we'll discuss a sloppy health care provider who now owes over $1.1 million in damages for an HIV confidentiality breach. We are back to wrap up with our Of Note segment for this episode. A Delaware trial judge has ordered a health care provider to pay more than $1.1 million in damages to a man that argued he lost his job because the provider faxed information about his HIV-related treatment to his workplace. Can you tell us more about it, Art? Okay. This, it's really sort of odd. You'd think with all that has happened over the past few decades with the AIDS epidemic that a health care provider would realize you don't fax stuff to someone's workplace that has confidential information. The problem is maybe the patient didn't communicate adequately with the healthcare provider that he wasn't open in his workplace about being HIV positive. But even so, the, the, the healthcare provider would thoughtlessly, and it seems to me this is a case of sloppiness, uh, would fax something over without at least calling the patient first and saying, be at the fax machine, we're about to send it, don't let anyone, you know. But what happened is someone else, of course, the fax machine switches on, starts printing out, whoever's closest to it, rips it off and delivers it. And so uh, very quickly it became known in the workplace uh, that he was HIV positive, suing as a John Doe in this case, uh, and subsequently he was terminated. And he said that he can't think of any other reason he was terminated. His uh, wor work evaluations were good. There were no other grounds to terminate him. Uh, we're not told in this opinion whether he's filed a discrimination case against his employer. That's sort of irrelevant here because this is the lawsuit against the health care uh, provider who faxed the information. And he's saying that uh, this uh, violated the obligation of privacy and confidentiality, and it was negligent, and a judge allowed him to get to a jury with his claim, and the jury awarded over $1 million dollars. Uh, 86,526 for lost wages and 1,050,000 for emotional distress. Uh, and the, uh, the employer argued, well, he was already disturbed about being HIV positive, but he was able to convince the jury that his emotional distress was exacerbated and made much worse by this incident and, of course, the subsequent discharge. Uh, so it will be interesting to see, given this enormous verdict, whether there's an appeal in the case. I would imagine if the Infectious Disease Associates PA uh, doesn't have enough insurance coverage uh, here, they're, they're probably going to try to appeal. It's still a little scary that in 2016, even, you know, someone apparently gets terminated because his co-workers found out he's HIV positive. Well, I'm, I'm hopeful that he also brought a discrimination case against the employer. Uh, we'll see uh, if that surfaces at some point. But right now, we're talking about the liability of the health care worker right. for failing to preserve the patient's confidentiality. 
Alright, well that's all the time we have today. One shameless plug before we end this podcast. If you're going to be in New York City uh, on March 24th, please consider coming to Legal's annual dinner. We will be honoring Kevin Cathcart, who is retiring after a long tenure as Executive Director of Lambda Legal, and Kai Feldblum, one of the EEOC commissioners uh, whose work we've mentioned throughout this podcast, as well as remembering former New York State Chief Judge Judith Kay. Thanks for listening. To read the latest issue of Law Notes, please become a member of Legal or a Law Notes subscriber by visiting www.le-gal.org. This and future podcasts can also be found online in iTunes or at legal.podbean.com. Please take a moment to give us lots of stars there if you like the podcast. Follow Legal on Twitter at LGBTBarNY or like us on Facebook. Thanks again, and we will see you in April. <laughs>